Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. As we reflect upon it now, speak to our hearts that we might live in a way that honours your sacrifice on our behalf. In your name we pray. Amen. Over the last month and a half or so, we've been approaching Easter by studying the seven last words of Christ on the cross. So we began with Jesus' words of forgiveness for those who are crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And we looked at his words of comfort for the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. And his words of care for John and for his mother. This is your son and this is your mother. Then we looked at his cry of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry of need, I am thirsty. And his prayer of trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Today we're going to end that series, appropriately enough, appropriately enough with John 19.30. It is finished. And there's no question that on that Friday afternoon, at a place called this place of the skull, it certainly looked like it was finished. It was over, done with, ended, gone. Because you say it is finished when you realize that once again, your team didn't make it into the playoffs. You say it's finished when you're let go from a job, you're fired, you're laid off, whatever. It's over and done with. And there's many people these days who are experiencing that. Twelve years ago, when I started sailing in Canada, I discovered that the two most important dates in the calendar are Lifton in the spring, when your boat's lifted off of its, cal- off its cradle and put in the water, and lift out in the fall when it's put back on its cradle and stored for the winter. Lifton is a joyous occasion. There's still lots of work to be done, getting the boat ready for the season, putting the mast on, getting everything cleaned up after the winter, um, getting, the map, getting the sails set up, all that kind of stuff but you look forward to hours of enjoyment throughout the season. Lift out, on the other hand, is a sad occasion. It's the end of the season. No more sailing for, well, at least where I lived in Canada, seven months while the lakes froze over. It's finished. It's over and done with. It's over and done with. That's certainly how the Romans thought of Jesus' crucifixion, if they even thought of it much at all. To them... It was the natural end of yet another Jewish resistance movement. Rome was the superpower of the day, and as lots is you know written and said about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. However, they kept that peace by brutally suppressing any opposition. In the year six AD in Galilee, the Romans killed two thousand revolutionaries. Twenty years after Jesus' Jesus' crucifixion, they eliminated another three thousand. And along with the mass killings, they also carried out what today are euphemistically called targeted killings of leaders of movements they saw as threats. Only they didn't use drones, they used crosses. 
To them, Jesus was just one more insurgent leader to deal with. Lop the head off the Jesus movement uh, by executing its leader and the rest of them would just kind of melt away, finished and done with. It's over and done with. That's how Jewish religious leaders thought of Jesus' crucifixion. His teaching had threatened their privileged position and they had manipulated the crowd and the Roman authorities to get rid of him. And now he was gone, taken care of. It was finished. It's over and done with. That's probably even how Jesus' own followers felt. Less than a week earlier, Jerusalem had loved Jesus. He had ridden into the city on the back of a donkey in the midst of celebrating crowds. The disciples had all thought, this is it. This is where we take charge and change society. And then it had gone all, all gone so wrong. Jesus had been arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. And there he was, dead on the cross. Now they would grieve and go back to their old jobs, fishermen, tax collectors, or whatever it was they'd been doing before Jesus came into their lives. It was finished. It was over. It's done with. But there's another way to say it's finished. It's finished can also mean it is accomplished, it is fulfilled, it is completed. Then you put an exclamation mark at the end of the sentence. It is accomplished, the job is done, the work is complete, and that calls for a victory celebration, high fives all around. When you graduate from school, it's finished, you have a celebration, you've worked hard, you've made the grade, you've walked across the stage, you've gotten your uh, diploma or degree, you have something to celebrate. It is finished means it's completed. Almost every week I say it is finished when I've written my message. Sometimes that happens earlier in the week, sometimes later in the week, but every week I start off with a blank sheet of paper, or actually more like a blank computer screen, but you, you get the idea. Um, and by the end of that process, I have something to share with the congregation. It's finished. And these are all good, positive, celebratory meanings of it is finished, compared with the sad, negative feelings we talked about earlier. But how do we know which meaning to use? How do we know if Jesus was just admitting defeat... Or, if it is finished, should have an exclamation mark after it. Well, we know because John tells us in verse 28, he says about Jesus, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Because it's the same word for finished in both places in Greek, to tetelestai. And that tells us a lot because tetelestai doesn't have the same range of meanings in Greek that finished has in English. Tetelestai is related to the word telos, which means purpose, achievement, completion. So you don't, talk, you don't use tetelestai to talk about simply coming to the end of something, like you come to the end of a toilet roll, which these days apparently is a major crisis, or the end of the coffee, or the end of the ice cream in the freezer. That's not what it means. Tetelestai is about purpose. It's about something fulfilling what it was meant for. 
That's why in the Turkish New Testament it says tamamlandı, not bitti. It is completed, not it is finished. Likewise, in the Dari New Testament in Afghanistan, this verse says tamam should rather than the khalas should. And there's a couple of modern English translations that make that same choice, where it says it is completed. But most stick with finished. I think it's another, it's, that's another one of those situations in translation where tradition has won out over clarity. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' death on the cross being a good death. But we can actually only really know if something is good or bad if we know something about what its purpose is. I learned in shop, school, shop class in high school that um, a screwdriver makes a bad chisel and a chisel makes an even worse screwdriver. Why is that? Because the purpose of a screwdriver is to drive screws, not to gouge out sections of wood. And the purpose of a chisel is to remove sections of wood, not to drive screws. The Westminster Catechism, written in the 1600s, asks the question, what is the chief purpose of a human being? And it gives the answer that a human being's chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Because it's only once you get the purpose clear that you can begin to make decisions about whether a particular choice or even the direction of a whole life is good or bad. <clears throat> Jesus clearly knew that he had a purpose. John four thirty four. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It's the same word, to finish, to complete, to bring to fulfillment, to accomplish the goal. Now, some of us are more goal-oriented than others, and that's okay. For a number of years, when I was in Afghanistan, I taught uh, Gallup's Strengths Finder material in um, leadership training courses. Now, because we had the test translated into Persian, but that wasn't one of the languages on the website, I would have people fill out the test on paper, and then I'd go in and enter in their, um, their responses so they could get a score. As a result of that, I could see how people responded to the questions, or actually their statements. Statements like, for me, everything has to be planned, or I prefer to go along with whatever happens, or I am driven by my goals, I set performance objectives every week, my work is determined by the demands of the day. And the responses vary widely, which is fine because it's a measure of personality, and personality is neither right nor wrong, it just is. Some people are goal-oriented, some aren't. Jesus was goal-oriented, and he was very clear about his goal. His goal was to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Hear the same thing in Luke 12, 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it was already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am until <coughs> I am under until it is completed. Jesus was under constraint. He was mejbur until he had completed, until he had finished the work that he had come to do. That almost sounds like he didn't have a choice. 
but the constraint was internal, not external. He wasn't being forced along this path. He freely chose to go to the cross. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And despite what you might have been taught, and actually what a good number of translations actually put into the text, that verse does not mean that Jesus looked beyond the cross for the joy of heaven, and that was what motivated him to go to the cross. The for in that sentence is the Greek word anti, which everywhere else in the New Testament means instead of, or in place of. And that word is actually foundational to the idea of Jesus substituting himself for us. He went to the cross for us, instead of us. So what Hebrews is actually saying is that Jesus made a choice. He could have avoided the cross. He could have had you know, an easy life. He could have had a normal life filled with the joys that come with it, but he didn't. Instead, he freely chose to go to the cross. And if we understand the cross that way, we won't fall into the mistake of some who characterize the cross as being some kind of divine child abuse where the father kills the son. That's a caricature of what scripture says. Jesus came to earth to do a job. He had a very clear idea of what that job was and he set his face to complete it. And that's why he can say on the night before his arrest in John 17, 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And that's why John tells us in John 19, 28, later, knowing that everything had now been finished. Everything had been finished. The plan had been accomplished. The design had been carried out. The purpose behind God's coming to earth in the flesh had come to fruition. It is finished. So what was this plan that had been accomplished? What was this design that had been carried out? What was it? What is it that is finished? In the first prophecy in the Bible, back in Genesis 3, God says to the snake, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. All through the Bible, there's this underlying theme of warfare. Not warfare of one nation against another, but warfare between good and evil, truth and error, and ultimately between God and Satan. And that warfare is already hinted at in Genesis 3. When God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And the solution to that warfare is also hinted at. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Evil will be crushed. But not without cost to the one doing the crushing. And it's John who tells us in chapter 20 that John that Jesus still bears the scars in his resurrected body that he got in his battle with evil. For the first thousand years of the church's history, this was the main way that Jesus' death and resurrection were seen, as victory over evil, evil personified in the person of, of Satan. It's still how the Eastern Orthodox Church teaches the cross, that in Christ. God was defeating Satan and winning back to himself 
all those who were in bondage to evil and death. Since the 12th century, the Western Church has focused more on the cross being a transaction in which Jesus paid for our sin, almost to the point of forgetting that there's a spiritual battle going on that is much, be- much bigger than just human rebellion. So what's finished is the battle against evil. There are still pockets of resistance in many human hearts, and in the same way, sorry, but in the same way that uh, the D-Day landings on June 6, 1944, were the decisive turning point in the Second World War, so the cross is a decisive turning point in the battle against evil. What's fulfilled is the plan to fulfill all that was foretold and foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Throughout the Old Testament, sin is dealt with through sacrifice. When you sinned, when, not if, when you sinned, you brought a sacrifice to the priest, and the blood of that sacrifice would cover your sin. It didn't get rid of it, but it did deal with it. Now Hebrews 9.11 tells us, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And this is where the Western Church has put its focus, on Jesus' blood, dealing with our sin in a way that the blood of animal sacrifices could only, that they could only foreshadow. And as the animal in the Old Testament dies in place of the worshiper, so Jesus dies in place of each one of us. And as the Western world has become more and more individualistic, that's naturally where the emphasis has fallen, almost to the point that some churches suggest that this encompasses everything that Jesus did on the cross. But there's more. Something else was finished. The plan to redeem humanity. In Galatians 4, Paul says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but God's children. And since you are his children, he has made you also heirs. The first image comes from warfare. The second from the Old Testament sacrificial system. This image comes from the slave market. It says that God has sent his son to redeem us, to buy us back so that he could set us free and change us from being slaves to sons and daughters of God. There's one other thing that's finished. The plan to conquer death. Hebrews 2.14 says, He, that's Jesus, to, he shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held, were held in slavery by their fear of death. That com- combines the warfare image and the slave image in one place, setting us free from death. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is so profound that no one metaphor can hold the content. 
He conquered the enemy. He fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. He redeemed humanity and restored us to being children of God. He conquered death by dying himself. And there's so much more. Ushering in the kingdom. Opening the way for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on all people. Judging evil once and for all. All these things Jesus accomplished on the cross. And he accomplished them by dying on the cross. That's why this day is called Good Friday. Even though it's a day that we remember our Savior died. It's good because so much good was accomplished on it. And we keep this day. We don't celebrate it. We keep it. We remember it. And as we keep this day, it's good for us to remember all these things that Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross. And come Sunday, we will celebrate his resurrection that vindicates his sacrifice and declares his victory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for the cross, the price you paid for us. Thank you, Lord, for going to the cross, for following through in the, on the plan until it was finished. And because it's finished, Lord, we know that we can walk in new relationship with you. Help us, Lord, as we gaze upon the cross to repent from anything that's in our hearts, anything that, any sin that would would come between us. Strip away the dead and dying stuff, Lord, that we might walk in holiness before you in the shadow of the cross. We pray in your name. Amen.